You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Hear the word of the Lord. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun, because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, peace be with you. All right. Well, welcome. If you're a first-time guest, what's up? What's popping? What's crackalacking? Hello. My name is Jamal. We are so glad that you are here. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of um, explaining, illustrating, and applying God's Word uh, this morning. If you are um, a part of LTN for the summer internship, I'm going to ask you to please stand. As many of you guys know, uh, LTN stands for Love uh, Thy uh, Neighbor and uh, Neighborhood, and they are here to uh, intern uh, these uh, young adults from all over the U.S. uh, to serve in our city nonprofits, as well as um, they'll be here at the church serving. So we pray that this summer will be amazing for y'all, that you will feel uh, God's peace amidst trying to figure everything out, and um, we hope that uh, being a part of Sojourn Um, brings you closer to Jesus. So thank you. Well, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into the text. Uh, Father, thank you so much for just being our father. And I pray, Father God, that you will remind us of that and that you would allow those words to be real to us, that we are not orphans, but that we belong to you, that you have redeemed us, that you've set your hand upon us, that you have made us right with you. And as a result, we have nothing to lose. We only have joy and peace and eternal life to gain. Pray for the person who's just worn out and confused and barely holding on this morning. 
Lord, would you be merciful to them and allow Jesus to come through in his sermon in such a way that they would leave? Knowing Jesus as Lord and experiencing his peace. Even now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, in 2017, the Huffington Post, um, Australia, they came out with a study um, in which they looked at, on average, uh, for kind of the, the Western world, how much time within a person's lifespan, lifespan they, they spend doing specific tasks. And so they had about 10 categories. I just threw up a, a couple of them um, up here. And the main th- uh, thing that they looked at was in an average of 79 years, this is the average lifespan that they claim that the average uh, modern man uh, lives, um, that they spend this much time doing these various tasks. 33 years, they say, is spent in bed. 26 of those years sleeping, seven years trying to sleep. And the church said, amen. 13 years and two months are spent at work. 11 years and four months are dedicated to screen time. Four years and four months are spent eating. And they go on to give other lists and they show how they uh, get to their research. But if we um, are to believe that, the thing I want us to see in this text is that 13 years and two months of our life, of our 79 uh, years on earth is spent working, is spent um, at our place of employment or perhaps the business that we run or in our home at work. And that's a lot of time. And how we view our work, how we uh, view that time makes all of the world of a difference. In 1971, there was a book that was written by Studs Terkel. And Studs Terkel basically went around and he interviewed um, the average blue-collar worker in America. And he got thousands and thousands of people on the record just simply explaining, that's all the book is, just quoting how they experience life at work every day. And he starts the book off with a really somber uh, quote. He says this in setting up the book. This book, being about work, is by its very nature, about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all or beneath all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. And this book uh, became a, a really important book and, and uh, sold uh, tons of copies. It was on the New York Times bestseller list because it um, summarized what so many working class people feel. And the reason I bring that quote up is because it sounds like the sage in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22, when he writes this, for what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun. For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is hevel or futile 
It's empty. It's smoke. It's meaningless. When you think about work, and even as some of you are going to drive to a physical location tomorrow, um, what motivates you as you go? Um, as you drive to the location, or perhaps if you're working at home, as you flip open a laptop, or as you change diapers and, and wash clothes, do you uh, hear yourself saying, I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And for others who maybe find satisfaction in your work, are you finding your identity in it? For some of us, we love what we do, but work can end up being meaningless, vain, and futile if our identity rests in how we perform or what we do. And this is what the sage has been trying to teach us. Remember, I told you that, that this, is, this uh, Solomon is, is reflecting and he's writing on life and he's telling us about this great experiment that he did to find pleasure and to find fulfillment in, in life. And he tested everything, right? Um, he tested uh, comedy. We learned that last week. He, he looked at uh, what it looked like to find fulfillment and possessions and, uh, and, and, and sexual pleasure and all these different things. And at the end, he said that he ended up empty. He ended up a veil. And so today, he's going to slow us down and even talk about how in his work, he pursued satisfaction. In his work, he pursued significance, and it ended up with him not being fulfilled. In verse 18, the sage writes, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun. I hate it. And as I was reading this this week, I'm like, really, my sage? You hated it? Look at what it gave you. Verse 4 in chapter 2, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing shoes. I acquired male and female servants. I own livestock, large herds and flocks. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings in poverty. I gather male and female singers. He had bands named after him and many concubines. And he goes on and on and on. And he talks about all these things that he, were able, that he was able to acquire because he was so skilled at his work. And yet, even after acquiring all these things, he said, Havel, emptiness, smoke, unfulfillment. So Solomon, why did you hate all your work? Well, he gives us two reasons. The first is this, is he realized that even after working so hard and acquiring all these things, he came to the conclusion that he must leave it to one who will come after him. He must leave it to one who come after him. As a sage, late in his life, as he thought about all that he accomplished, it brought him to despair as he realized that he won't be able to take any of this with him. There's an old saying that you never see a hearse, a U-Haul truck behind a hearse. Well, apparently someone has done that. I Googled it and this picture kept coming up. Amen. (laughs) It's a lot going on in this picture. I'm not sure what's happening, but... But the point that the saying is getting to is is this, right? You work hard, you accumulate all this stuff, and when you die, it becomes somebody else's. 
And this is Solomon's point that he worked hard. He was skilled. He had all this knowledge and all this wisdom. And when he died or when he dies, it's going to be left. The second point that he's that makes him depressed is this is everything that he worked for. He realizes is going to end up in the hands of someone else who may be wise or who may be foolish. So not only am I going to die and not be able to enjoy it, but there's a possibility that everything that I built in essence will be wiped away by a fool. And this made him depressed. Now, if you know Solomon's story, you know that this is actually what happens. Solomon has a son by the name of Rehoboam. You can read this in 1 Kings chapter 12. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we read about how upon Solomon's death, the Rehoboam is crowned king. But at his coronation, a group of people came before him and they said, listen, man, we've got a problem. Your father worked us too hard. In essence, everyone in his kingdom was his slaves. And what we need from you is for you to be a servant leader and not to work us as hard. If you do this, we will be for you all of your days. Rehoboam hears this, and the Bible says he goes to his father's sages, those who were with his father throughout his reign, which made him so powerful. And he asked them, he said, what should I do? These people are saying this about my father and the way we rule. And they said, listen, they're right. But we tell you. If you will listen to them, be a servant leader and give them the appropriate amount of work, your kingdom will flourish. The Bible says that Rehoboam rejected their counsel. He went to his homeboys and he says, can you believe what they're telling me? How should I respond to them? And his friends, they took out their iPads and they began to help him craft a statement. And a statement in essence said this. I'm just joking. Somebody like, what? Really? Miracle iPads back then. Wow. <laughs> and that's as they said, they said this tell those who are working for you this that your pinky is larger than your father's waist. And if you thought that working under my dad was difficult, wait till you see how much work I give you. And the Bible says that from that day forward, Israel began to split. And two, and it became two kingdoms. All that Solomon had worked for, all that he had accumulated, all that he had built, the peace that had reigned all throughout Israel because of his wisdom and savvy, just like that was taken away. And this is Solomon at the end of his life trying to drop wisdom and knowledge to us and saying that he fears that this is the case. And as he thinks about the possibility of this being the case, it makes him depressed. In essence, he's saying your work will not satisfy you. Your accomplishments will not fulfill you because they don't last always. Verse 20, so I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I labor at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, do you feel his pain? And he must give his portion to a person who does not work for it. This too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. 
Like I poured my life into this kingdom and the realization is, is that it will not last. I will not be remembered. Everything I accomplish will belong to someone else. He's like, yo, I stayed up late at night thinking through this stuff, losing sleep at times. And just like that, it can be wiped away. And here's the sage's point. Pleasure and success at work can never bring satisfaction in his life because all is meanness when God is not at the center of it. It can never bring satisfaction. It can never make you whole. And my encouragement to you as you listen to this sermon is simple. It's an invitation for you to put God at the center of your work life and learn to enjoy his good gifts. It's to put God at the center of your work life and and learn to enjoy his good gifts. Genesis chapter one, chapter two, we see God creates, he works. And after he creates and after he makes everything he does is good. And then in the same way, he created man and man is created in the image of God. I think part of being created in the image of God is is the ability to create, the ability to work. So even before the fall, work was there. And even in heaven, work will be there. Work is a part of what it means to be, be human. But we work and we cultivate, we create not for our own glory, but for his. And whenever we work, whenever we build, whenever we cultivate something and we are at the center of it, Our praise, our glory is at the center of it. It will lead us empty. God created you to live in him. In him, you live, you move, you have your being. God created you to live in him in such a way that as you do whatever task, you should uh, be doing that task to point back to him, to experience pleasure in that task as you do it in him and with him. And when you don't, you experience misery, you get off balance, it becomes about you and self. And this is what happened to Adam and Eve. They were called to cultivate, to create, to expand the glory of God in this garden and beyond. And they lost focus and they made it all about them. And they ate of that forbidden fruit. And as a result, sin into the world. And now everything we do is under the sun and under the fall. This is what Paul was getting at. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, when he told the church of Corinth, he says, listen, whatever you do. And he mentions the most basic and menial things to say, yes, even these things, whether you eat or whether you drink, you do it for the glory of God. That's a short statement, but it's powerful. What does it mean to do something for the glory of God? When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about the beauty of God, the intrinsic worth of God, which is made public. You do it for his fame, for his namesake, so that people would experience his presence. He says, so even when you eat, even when you're drinking, take time to make sure that that small act that you do multiple times a day doesn't just become about you. But you do it in such a way 
that it becomes about him. And we're going to talk about how you do that in a, in a second. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 24 says this again, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. I'm going to pause right there because that's a, that's a lot, isn't it? And it's hard. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you first and foremost, you do not serve your employer. First and foremost, you don't uh, serve a, a spouse or a, a friend or a teacher or a parent. For some of you high schoolers who uh, are obsessing over getting an A because you think that it will win your parents' approval and you'll be noticed and you'll be loved. He says, no, whatever you do, you do it to be seen by the Lord. You do it with the audience of one. Because if you don't, if we do our work to please man, we'll find ourselves constantly on an emotional uh, roller coaster and seesaw because sometimes they'll notice your good work and sometimes they won't. Sometimes they will appreciate it and sometimes they won't. Sometimes it'll be good work and sometimes it won't be good work. But you do it to the Lord knowing that your identity is rooted in him and that he loves you despite your performance. And his love will never wane and it will never fade. That in him, you are 100% approved 100% of the time. It's amazing. Matthew chapter four, we see Jesus, right? And he's getting ready to start his public ministry. And I think that it's so important that God lets us into a conversation that he has with his son in front of everyone. And God says to his son, this and to the crowd, this is my beloved son in whom I well please. And why do I think that's significant? I think that's significant because Jesus's public ministry had not started yet. And I believe what God was saying and showing us is that once you belong to the Abba, you are affirmed as his beloved, irregardless of performance. Irregardless of performance. And some of us in here, we are slaves to the, the praise of a parent, to the praise of a friend, to a praise of a spouse. And God wants to free you from that and say, no, the way in which you find joy, the way in which you find peace is by recognizing that you are completely and fully loved and you serve and you live outside of that. That is the gospel. Jesus died for you before you performed well. The Bible says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. When you blow it, when you mess up, when you cheat, lie, don't show up, forget something, God is not in heaven loving you less. He is loving you as if you did everything 100% well, because what he sees is not your performance, but what he sees is your faith and his son's performance, and that pleases him. 
And as Christians, we have an invitation to be the most free, joy-filled people who are creating not out of a need to be affirmed, but from a place that says, I am affirmed, I am wanted, I am loved as I am in him. Imagine, imagine the difference of living that way out that it can make for your coworkers, for your roommates, for your classmates. As they see, yes, you're human and you don't do it perfectly, but as they see you serving them, not because you need something from them, but you serving them out of a place that says all of my needs, my deepest needs have been satisfied in him. There's three reasons to pursue work with God and for his glory and for the common good. Three real quick reasons. First is this. Your work will not remain, but his glory will. When we put ourselves at the center of our lives and we work for our own advantage and our own fame, it's foolish because no matter what we create, it ultimately will not last. And we talked about this in the first sermon, how we're going to all die and 99.999% of us, 100 years from night, now will not be remembered. And if so, it's foolish for us to put all of our life and all of our stock and our performance at, at work and our identity and our performance at work. Well, it won't last. I mean, look at this beautiful edifice. Look, look around. Look how beautiful it is. Look at the detail. And someone stood on this ground around in the 1860s, and they put their heart into this, their life into this space. And the majority of us in this room have no idea who did it. No idea who did it because they're not here. Stayed up late, worked hard to get the funding, worked hard to get the, 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 the money of the group or the, uh, the service of the group who would create this. And we don't even know their name. And if you do know their name, it's because you know Johnny and Alex Onan, and they started a group called Murphy DX, which was named after the person who was the architect of this building, right? <laughs> but your work will not remain. Second, your work cannot satisfy you. Listen to me. Your work cannot satisfy you. I don't care how well you do it at the end of the day. It will leave you with a yearning to want more. Tom Brady gave every uh, preacher a, a softball, and it was a, it's a sad one. On June 20th, uh, on, uh, in June of 2005, on a 60-minute episode with Steve Croft, when, uh, just after winning the Super Bowl, when Croft asked him, has he achieved everything that he wanted to achieve? And, and how, do, how do you feel about it? And this was Brady's words. Well, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. 
I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? I also was reading this week about um, Deion Sanders and his testimony about how he came to the Lord and how he accomplished all these things in, in sports, played uh, baseball, played football, was at the most elite level. And at the end of the day, when he started reflecting on his life, he talked about how empty he was, even though he had everything a man could want. Just yesterday, I just randomly uh, Googled uh, uh, Andre 3000. You guys know who Andre 3000 is, some of you? From Outcast, I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Y'all know that song? Kinda. Nope. It's okay. You don't gotta lie. Jesus loves you. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I said, "Man, what happened to Andre 3000?" And so I just googled his name. I'm like, "Where is he at?" And I read this uh, uh, interview that he did with Rolling Stones. And some of you guys read it. It was the saddest interview. And they were like, man, when are you coming out with new music? And he says, I can't make any music anymore. And I'm paraphrasing. He says, it's too much pressure. I get too much anxiety. I can't live up to what I created before. He says, I'm not sure who I am anymore. I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be. Here's a man who was at the top of, of his genre, winning Grammys, creating music, traveling the world, and it left him paralyzed as he hit the top. He said, there's nowhere else to go. I can't even live up to my own standards. I wish everyone, in essence, would just leave me alone. This is what the sage is trying to show us, that your work won't remain. Your work will not satisfy you. Therefore, your, worth, your work cannot be where you define your self-worth. Some of us, we work hard, honestly, because we're competing with other people. And we're not competing with other people necessarily to get what they got. It's not necessarily because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. I'm convinced that the reason we compete with other people is because we want to be loved. And we see someone who appears to be doing something better than us, and we think to ourselves they're better than us. That means they're probably more loved than us. And if I just worked hard or did better than them, I could get noticed like them. I could feel love like them. My life would matter. And Solomon is going to pick this theme up in chapter four when he says this. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This, too, is all and a pursuit of the wind. Hevel, 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 a pursuit of the wind. Empty, 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 a pursuit of the wind. Solomon is trying to give us more. And we see exactly what he's trying to give us in verse 24. He gives us the sunshine of hope. Now, we talked about last week how the end of the book has really one big main application, which is to, to fear God and to, to walk in his ways. But before he gets to that big application, he's, he's going to give us glimmers of hope and, and how to be. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person to eat, to drink, and to enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? And what Solomon is saying that he learned is rather than pursuing work for, for his identity, what he has learned is to put God at the center of our work and to learn to enjoy what he gives us through our work with him. 
that if we work apart from him, if we work, we work for our own fulfillment, that we are going to end up disappointment. But if we put God at the center of our work, if we make glorifying him our life's work as we work, and if we pause to say thank you and to appreciate what he allows us to have as a result of our work, we can have joy. Verse 26, for a person who is pleasing in his sight, right? This is Abel and Cain. Abel was pleasing in his sight because of what he offered and how he offered it. He did his work with God at the center. Cain was not pleasing in his sight because it was about him. To the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. And I mean, we can read this with an eternal lens to the person who is working to the glory of God, who is living to the glory of God, is the one who ultimately will experience true joy and true life. And not just when we get to heaven, but we get to experience it now. We get to experience his peace now. We get to experience his love now. We get to hear his voice daily in the mundane now, as opposed to always being off balance and imbalanced because we're trying to please people and to fill a hole in our heart that only he can fill. So how do, how do we do that? Let me give you Three real quick ways in which we cultivate a heart that allows us to do this. The first is this, is by implementing rhythms of rest. By implementing rhythms of rest. The way in which we uh, don't, uh, we put work in its proper perspective and the way in which we work in a way that is God-centered and not self-centered is by actually resting. God rested on the seventh day after working for six days. And it's not because he needed to. It's because he wanted to model for humans what it looks like to be healthy, what it looks like to pause and to say it is good and to rest. And God is inviting you to rest. You know, one of the best things that that has happened to me And when I'm at my healthiest, though I don't do it um, as consistent as I want to, I'm sure enough getting better every year, is by implementing a Sabbath, a 24-hour period where I just stop from my work. And, And, you know, many of us, we have two days off per week. So maybe one day could be doing chores, and the other day can just be simply just stopping for 24 hours. You stop, you rest, you delight in God. And you feast. You give God praise for what he's given you. Another thing that we can do is setting daily boundaries. Uh, when I'm at my healthiest, I, I set a boundary and my wife helps me set a boundary where I can hand her my phone when I get off work and she can take it and turn it off and put it in a drawer so that I'm not checking email or responding to people when my uh, attention should be slowing down and being in the moment with my kids and with her. And some of you all need to set better boundaries. Your boss or your your employer or your coworkers have 24-hour access with you, and you are constantly connected to your phone. And you're burnt out. You're irritated. 
You have no spiritual authority or power because God is not at the center. He's been crowded out by everybody else and everything else. And we give him our leftovers. So implement rest. Second is by cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. By cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. I just said this. You know, one of the ways in which we protect ourselves from the futility of work is by slowing down to actually praise God for what he's given us. If we just continue to work and we just consume, consume, consume without thanking God, it produces a heart that's just going to want more and more and more and, and that never actually enjoys what is actually in front of us never actually stops to enjoy the food and the drink that we have daily. So pausing and praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and understanding that even this daily bread is a gift from him. It's his grace towards you. It's not something that you, that you are owed or that you even earned in your own strength, that he is the one by his grace that's giving you the strength to get what you need to eat. Pause and to give thanks for his good gifts. Could put up number three for me, brother. And third is by not neglecting God's work. And here's what I mean. We put work in its proper perspective and we push back against its futility. But remember, ultimately, that all of our work is God's work. It should be to glorify him and to cultivate the common good, no matter what you're doing, no matter how menial it may seem in this season. It is important work. Um, if it is if it is work, ethical work, it's important work. <laughs> Let me say that. All right, and we enter into that space of working with a goal to be salt and to be light, and to create things in such a way that when people receive that email, when people um, re- receive the work that we have, that they can pause and take pleasure in it. They can pause and take pleasure in it. And we do this with a standpoint. Jesus taught this in Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things. So we enter into this work seeking to, uh, to grow his kingdom, seeking to, to permeate his kingdom and wherever we are and to cultivate beauty, knowing that everything else will be added. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 54, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. And whatever God has given you to work to provide for your family is the Lord's work. Do it for his glory. So Martin Luther King Jr. said, if you're a, sweet, a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper you can be. Do it for the common good. Do it for God's glory. Because you know that your labor is not in vain. What does it look like for you to go into your workplace on Monday, not as just a a worker for this company, but as one who has been redeemed by Jesus, who is perfectly loved by him and who is eager for those at your job to know that love, a love that you don't have to work for, but a love that you work from. 
What does it look like for you to step into work as one who has received the benefits of Christ's finished work and who is able to work from a place of peace and love and joy and not to prove yourself? You know, this is uh, several years ago, I read a quote by D.A. Carson in his book, Praying Like Paul. And in it, he talks about how he had a conversation and coffee with someone who he thinks is the best preacher he ever heard. And he said at the time, this preacher was in his late 40s. And he said he has this cup of coffee with him, and the preacher confesses to him that he's burnt out, that he's uh, about to quit. And DA asked him why. He says, because I'm a perfectionist, and preaching every Sunday, it just wears me out, and I cannot get behind the pulpit without it being 100%. I've got to give God a best. DA Carson looked at him, was befuddled, and he prayed for him. Sometime later, he came across a quote that was by, written by an old saint. And the quote essentially was about 100%ism. And the saint uh, says in his quote that God is not interested in your 100%ism. He is not interested in your perfectionism. He is interested in you giving him your whole heart, but he's not interested in you doing everything with perfection. And he goes on to say, God calls us to give our task our best 80 percent so that we so that we don't burn out. All of our life isn't to be given to our work. And so D.A. Carson, in looking at that quote, he goes back to the guy and he tells him, God has not called you to be a perfectionist. God has called you to live before him, to love him with your heart, mind and soul. But what your congregation needs is not 100 percent every Sunday. In fact, I would rather you give 80% every week and preach for the next 20 years than 100% and only last two more years. God is not after your 100%ism. And the reason I say that as we talk about work and working to God's glory for what some of us hear is that I have to work so hard and I have to burn out and I have to be a perfectionist. That's not what God is after. God is after you putting him at the center of your work you doing it for his glory and his honor, and you doing it at a level in which it doesn't cause you to, to go crazy or to burn out. And the way you do that is from a place of love and acceptance because of what Christ has done for you and not from a place of needing the approval of others and fighting for the love of another. And every Sunday when we gather together, we take a meal that reminds us of this. And in just a second, we're going to take it. But first, let me pray for it. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.